Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Donaldson Files. This is Tom Donaldson along with Coco Konsky. We've got a special guest, uh, Kevin Roach. Uh, more in due moments. Uh, what we're going to talk about, I'm the chairman of America's PAC, uh, which is a political super PAC, uh, steep and evil, as I am now sitting in the middle of Georgia, running ads, trying to save that election for the good guys. Also, I am the... I am also the... Uh, Chairman of America's Majority Foundation. I should say I'm the Project Director, Research Associate of America's Majority Foundation, and the author of eight great books, none of which are bestsellers, but they all should be. And Coco will tell us all about herself. Go ahead. I, I guess I will. Um, hey, what's up? My name's Coco, but you guys probably already know that. I'm a writer. I work in, you know, beautiful city of Burbank, California, and um, I am here now. Yeah, yeah. All right. And, I don't always uh, get to be, but when I am, I am. Yeah. yeah, real quick question before we bring our two guests, Kevin Roach, and we got Mark Morano who's also joining us as well. Uh, you, uh, you went to a virtual, a virtual what, film festival? Yes. Okay. So what it was, it was a networking of industry people such as myself, and it was super, super unique. Um, A very good friend of mine was in charge of the festival. And so what it was is you went on the site, you downloaded kind of like the software or whatever, took like five seconds, and you created yourself an avatar. And it was like being in the Sims. If you've ever played that game, it was super weird, but super cool. So we all, they, they had this whole, it was kind of like being in a video game, but you're connecting with people and you attended seminars. Um, I got to talk to um, Sherry Belafonte, uh, Harry Belafonte's daughter, um, who she was one of the speakers. There was, uh, so many people, so many industry people, and um, it was really cool because the way you connected with them was you had your mic on, and if you got into someone's group or you, you met another avatar, you literally could talk to them directly without pressing any button. So it, it, was, it was really neat. It was, uh, it was really fun. And I think they were wor- worried because of COVID. It was called the Omni uh, Film Festival. And I think at first they were kind of worried that, you know, well, how is this going to work? Like, you know, there were over a thousand people there basically connecting. Mm -hmm. Uh, I met some really cool people from MTV, from Viacom, um, 105.9 hip hop. Um, And it was, uh, it was a really crazy experience. I was going to say, cause like you would go into these little halls and they each, each one had like a seminar for directing 
um, acting, um, you know, photography. And so you would, you would sit yourself down in like a seat and it, it was basically like a video game. And so, you know, with COVID around, like, obviously we're not having film festivals or anything. So I thought this was like such a cool thing to do because they don't know what you look like. That was the funny part. My avatar looked like the matrix. I literally looked like Carrie Ann Moss. So my avatar was, was kind of insane. There were people like, you know, you don't know really what they look like and you're just communicating with them. And I met so many great people there yesterday and it it was really fun. I think this could be something that they're going to do in the future. Yeah. You know, I I thought it was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like, like I say, it sounds pretty good because, uh, I know we're gonna like I say we'll have to follow up on this sometime next week. We got two really good guests on tonight, um, and what the, this is kind of part of a series I started last week with uh, Wilfred Riley, and I'm gonna get kind of a give everybody kind of like a little bit of a background here. Is like I say I work for a foundation, and I and I've overseen something like 40 research projects, and and I've been kind of concerned what I call the politicalization of science, where we're almost seeing you know, science being politicized as opposed to and whether or not we're witnessing censorship of scientific thoughts and ideas and whether or not we actually and and it does have consequences. You know, you and I've had this debate on the lockdown and but I do think that let's say if you're gonna base policies you better make sure you get the science right, the data right. And uh and so what I'm going to do here, first of all, I'm going to introduce our two guests, and I'm going to let them talk about themselves. Uh, I'm going to start with uh, Kevin Rocha. Kevin, uh, once you got you, you got the blog, The Health Skeptic, but you're more than just that. So kind of talk about your background. Yeah, um, I um, I live in Minnesota. I'm uh, pretty old. I've worked in healthcare for um, over 45 years in one way or another. At one point, I was um, general counsel of United Health Group, which is the largest healthcare company in the United States. And then I, at the same company, founded and ran a division that uh, did healthcare analytics and data and research. Uh, I've been a healthcare investor um, and a consultant, and I've written a blog on healthcare policy and research for over 15 years. And um, uh, in the course of the epidemic this spring, I have kind of turned the uh, blog into a focus on coronavirus because primarily because of some of my concerns about the uh, government responses um, and what the effects of those might be. Okay, okay uh, Mark, Marina, what you kind of, I know, like I say, you've been around uh, dealing with the climate change debate for like, what, about two decades now? Yes, uh, thank you. Um, yeah, so, uh, go ahead. Briefly, tell us. Yeah, my name is Mark Morano. I was the former U.S. Senate Environment and Public Works Committee um, communications director and speechwriter, and I did the 400 dissenting scientists report back in the Senate. And I founded Climate Depot 11 years ago, and I've been fighting the global warming battle, uh, all the nonsense coming from Al Gore, the United Nations. I have a book out, The Political Incorrect yeah, okay. Guide to Climate Change, and the movie Climate Hustle 1, which was 2016, and Climate Hustle 2, which just came out. 
and is actually available at ClimateHustle2.com. It stars Kevin Sorbo as the narration, and I'm the reporter in it, and we cover the entire aspect of global warming. I've gone to all the U.N. conferences. We interview U.N. officials, and we go through. And you find out it's an agenda. It's not about controlling the climate. It's about controlling you. And I'll just say that COVID, uh, as, as we just heard uh, from Kevin, is not about controlling a virus. It's about controlling us. So all they've done is switch from using the climate as an example to now COVID, and they're achieving everything they ever dreamed of with their climate agenda. They're achieving it and succeeding with the COVID uh, lockdowns and mandates. All right, I'll tell you what, yeah, so I'm going to let you go ahead and respond. Died from COVID. So, um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't put up with people who don't wear masks. You know, if, if you can't follow the law, if you can't follow the rules, then you should stay your ass home. That's how I truly feel. Especially since I've lost right. like nine people that I personally know to COVID. Right, well, I never wear a mask. Uh, I mean, I very rarely wear a mask, and you know, there's no. You may as well have a rabbit's foot in your pocket if that's your attitude, and everyone has a right to go out. And actually, all you have to do is invoke a health okay. exemption. Okay, there's no get COVID. Go get COVID. If you want to go out? Go get COVID. You that's won't cool. get COVID. You that's 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 nothing to do with it. Yeah, hold on, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Yeah, hold on just a hold on that thought right there. This Tom Donaldson Kokokonski with Mark. And Kevin Roach, uh, we'll be right back after these uh, messages. <laughs> this is Dr. Larry Fidoa, host of the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network, inviting you to listen live every Wednesday evening from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time at blogtalkradio.com and the podcast every Monday through Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. I am called the philosopher of current events, an independent, open-minded conservative with my own ideas. If you are interested in advertising or having your own show, email us at labachelor40 at gmail.com. Yeah, this is Tom Donaldson back once again with the uh, Donaldson Files and uh, with Coco Konsky, uh, Mark Morano, and Kevin Rich. Kevin, I'm going to start with you because uh, in Minnesota, because uh, one of the problems I have and what, what I want the both of you to do is talk about the different models that people have used. And I know in Minnesota, in Minnesota in, and there's certainly been questions dealing with those models, the efficacy. And and I know Minnesota had their own models, so kind of talk about the Minnesota models and weaknesses of those of that particular model. Yeah, so um, you know I have been familiar with uh, the use of models in healthcare uh, for a long time. The division I ran um, actually built a lot of models in in healthcare. Most of the models we're building are based on. Uh, very large databases of actual data, um, claims data typically about the services people receive, who delivers those services, um, and what the outcomes are. So you're typically probing for relationships based on large data sets that already exist. Um, One of the things I think that's been a real problem with the uh, epidemic modeling is people don't have that past data. And it's very hard to build a good model or even a schematic of a good model if you don't have data, if you don't have some basic sense of the relationships. And that problem was exacerbated here by the fact that the only data people actually did have came from China and um, 
was uh, just very unreliable, and people have now recognized that. So we got models around the globe that projected um, numbers of deaths and infection fatality rates that were sky high and that frankly contributed to kind of the hysteria and the stampeding into lockdowns and other government actions. And we certainly saw that in Minnesota. We had a model here that projected, uh, still projects, they've, I think, been too embarrassed to update it, but um, it projected that by late July, 50,000 people would have died in Minnesota, and that was under the lockdown scenario, telling people to stay at home, keeping schools and businesses closed. Um, and it projected that the epidemic would basically be over here because 90% of Minnesotans would have been infected by early September. Um, that model, as I said, was just an embarrassment, but it was used by the governor uh, to justify basically completely shutting down the state, closing the schools, and um, putting a lot of people out of work, um, causing kids to miss uh, their educational needs, causing social disruption, causing healthcare disruptions. So just a um, kind of a classic example of using a really bad model to justify policy that um, that had a lot of uh, very negative consequences for people. Okay, let me follow up there because I want to now get Coco is because obviously you know I don't to me I, I you know when I look at the numbers I would say from a virus from a infectious vitality rate point of view you can make the argument that this is similar to the 1957-1968 pandemic and slightly you know, and certainly double the more double the let's say the flu of the past decade but you're still looking at two per thousand but you also have now and maybe it's a question i'm going to throw back to you because i know coco is you know like i say she's lost people on this and and, and i like to have her you know comment after after you but on a policy basis, if somebody says to you, here's a, that, let's say the, you know, let's say two per thousand, how do you, what are your policies to save that extra one per thousand without total disruption of society, especially with a virus that, quite frankly, is going to kill the elderly and those with immunocompromised uh, state more so than, let's say, the younger population? You know, what is that policy should be versus what we ended up in, like in Minnesota? You know, what does the data tell you? Let's put it up. Well, I, I think you have to think about what your prioritizations are. And to me, the prioritization should be one of the very highest priorities should be the welfare of children. And I don't think there's any question that, um, you know, trying to, <laughs> to call something distance learning is just engaging in a euphemism. It's pretty clear that except for very wealthy children whose families can afford tutors and um, all kinds of other uh, methods of trying to make up for not being in school, that it's just been, especially for low income and minority children, a real disaster. So uh, the first priority I think should be we should have just kept um, schools open. And then, as you said, it's pretty apparent. 99% um, of people, this is not, not even not a serious illness. It's not something they would even be aware that they were, um, quote, infected. 
Um, so the fortunate thing is that it's a relatively small group of people, and it's typically the frail, elderly, um, typically people who are in a health condition that anything is going to push them over the edge. These are the people who would typically die of flu during flu season or um, any other uh, kind of health event is probably going to push them over the edge. Uh, and while it's easy to say, well, then just isolate them and protect them, to the extent we've done that, it has killed very large numbers of them, not from coronavirus, um, but from isolation and a diagnosis that euphemistically is referred to as failure to thrive. We've got at least 30,000 nationally excess dementia deaths that are caused directly by isolating these people. So I think the policy in regard to those people has to be a little more sophisticated and balance their right and desire to, in the last few months of their lives, see the family and friends that are important to them against the risk that they they may um, uh, contract uh, coronavirus. And I, I frankly think that's a decision that should be left up to those elderly people. And what I hear from them they are far more concerned about being able to maintain some kind of contact with other people than they are about uh, getting sick with, with coronavirus. Um, because these people typically don't have much uh, social contact to begin with. Yeah. So um, yeah, hold, yeah. Hold on. Yeah. Hold on back. Okay. Coco. Cause I've made the same point on the show and you and I have had a disagreement and I know, you know what? I, I don't is, even know if I want to talk right now. Seriously. Um, you know what? I've lost like two, not two people. No. I, I know right now two people who have it. I lost a grandmother. Uh, didn't get to attend her funeral. You know, um, yeah. I've had it, you know, it's not some denying, like, you know, I mean, I don't understand how hard it is to wear a mask. Like I seriously do not. I, it, it really, really just makes me laugh at these deniers of COVID and like how it's, oh, well, isolation is worse for you. And no, 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 it's not. Because if you've been through it, if you've had it and talking about how like, oh, well, it's only the elderly. No, it's not. I, I have a friend who got COVID. His 10-year-old daughter is in the hospital and she has no pre-existing conditions. It affects everybody. It's not just if you're asthmatic, it's not, it, it affects everybody. Yeah. Well, here's the problem. Yeah. But this is a point that Kevin made and it's a point I make, you know, and, and, and I'm going to put it this way. You know, what do you tell that is this? I mean, statistically speaking, you know, young people under the age of 20 are more likely and this is from the CDC die from the flu than they are to die from COVID. The reverse of that, if you're a senior citizen, you're more likely to die of COVID. It's not that anybody's minimizing it tonight. It's the fact, okay, do you shut down? How much of the economy are you willing to shut down? I mean, just wear a you know, I, fine. I, you know, I wear a mask. You know, when, you know, I wear a mask outside, you know, when I'm in crowded areas. But I guess my question would be, and this is the question we've already had, this is a question where, you know, the, 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 you know, what you have to have, you know, what is going to do less damage to the overall society versus not? And, and and I guess my question it's always been to what extent because this is I mean basically the bottom line is we are are we killing more people uh, by the lockdown than we are saving lives 
you know, how much is that one to two per that you do? And that's always been the question. And I don't think that that's an illegitimate question to ask. You know, if the statistics would state that a person 10 years old, regard, you know, even if, let's say, the patient you're talking about in the hospital, that's a rarity. But you saw that with, you could see that exactly with the flu. And that's been the question all along that I've asked. And I'll let you, I'll let you make your comment there. Um, me? Yeah, I, you know. No, no, I, no. I I'm gonna say, you know, go ahead. Oh. Go ahead, Kevin. Oh, I, I was just going to say, I, you know, the question you posed is exactly the one when you talk about government responses. You know, government is supposed to do what provides the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Um, we have a lot of suicides among children as young as eight years old. Um that are being caused and occurring right now. Personally, I would trade a thousand 85-year-olds with six months of life left for one of those children. So people who you know want to use anecdote and emotion instead of looking at the actual statistics and data and seeing what's happening and what's going on and who think that only what happens to people who happen to have coronavirus matters and not what's happening to everybody else, I I simply do not understand that. And frankly, I don't wish to discuss or argue with people who aren't interested in kind of looking at the big picture, looking at the actual data, looking at the actual consequences and thinking about what's a really rational policy. Okay. All right. Um, okay, I'm going to switch now over to, okay, Mark on to the modeling dealing with climate change. Because uh, we've, you know, what, you know, if somebody, you know, you know, from your perspective, you've looked at these models, you know, what's the scientific valid, valid how valid are they, invalid, What's their strengths? What's their weaknesses? If somebody said to you, the models we're going to be using, that's going to be the premise of the Green New Deal. What's its weakness? Well, Why would you uh, – go ahead. Well, a model is a useful tool in doing all sorts of things, whether it's epidemiology or climate uh, or statistics of any kind. The problem is that in our modern science, because of you know the science must be bent in order to follow the prescribed poli- you know, the, the public policy. In other words, whatever the politicians decide, they need to conjure up that science. So what they've done with climate models is when current reality fails to alarm and when current data is not alarming, and I'm talking about sea levels, hurricanes, floods, hurricanes, droughts, tornadoes, wildfires – they make scarier and scarier predictions of the future. And so they use the models as a misdirection, and it's a way to be a tool of public policy. The classic example is uh, polar bears. In Al Gore's first film, he featured the polar bear. He just showed it on the ice, and it was all worried, and it was this emotional thing, and school kids got involved, saved the polar bears, and people, oh, the poor polar bear. Then people started looking a little closer and the polar bears paid no attention to the movie, by the way, because they ended up hitting at or near historic population highs. Their numbers were fivefold higher than 30, 40 years ago, mostly due to a ban on hunting. By all accounts in the Arctic, polar bears were not going extinct. They were at record numbers. 
So Al Gore doesn't mention them in his sequel. They're not even mentioned in his book or movie. Just they're eliminated because there's so many polar bears now. That's, but, but if you listen to the mainstream media, they can now cite a scientist who will say it's worse than we thought for polar bears. And you say, well, how is it worse than we thought? Well, because our predictions of the year 2080 for polar bears is now much worse than it was just five years ago. So when current reality fails to alarm, use a scary model and projection to make it, you know, to make it very scary and get your point across. And it's a misdirection. It's like a card game. Now, when it comes to yeah, this regular yeah, climate, yeah, okay, let me, yeah, yeah, let me quick question here. Okay, you, you know, basically, you know, when we look at these models, because my biggest concern has always been is that the worst, the worst case scenario, I guess my question was, we've dealt with the worst case scenario now for like six decades or five decades or four. I mean, I've lived through, you know, six end of the world scenarios. And my question that I'm going to ask both of you on the other side of this is when scientists get it consistently wrong, you know, or let's say government science gets consistently wrong, what is the price they have to pay for getting it wrong? Uh, and we'll come right back. This is Tom Donaldson, uh, Coco Konsky with Mark Marino and Kevin Roach. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for media flu. media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Okay. Okay, let's go back. Okay, Mark, here's the, let me give you my question. Here's the problem I have. Okay, in Minnesota, you had scenarios which you were talking 75, 50,000 dead. We're nowhere near near that. We're like 100-fold off. And yet, these, you know, you know, so did these individuals who do this marketing of this model, what price did they have to pay? Did they get fired? Are they still being used? You know, uh, it, it seems to me there's a price that if, if I was off by a factor of 100 or even factor of 5 or 10, I wouldn't have a job. And I've, I got a feeling, Kevin, you wouldn't either. So I guess the question I'll ask most of you is, what's the price one has to pay if you're off that, that factor? Well, there is no price. Well, for, for, a, for a government scientist, they usually get awards and tenure, and they get hired in academia. They get faded by the media. They're going to UN conferences. It doesn't really matter if you're wrong in the right direction. Do you understand what I just said there? If you're wrong in the right direction, meaning they politically prescribed Direction. In other words, if you predict too many polar bear deaths, fine. But if you dare say polar bears are doing fine and they're not, they're not threatened, then you get uninvited to scientific conferences. And I actually have that case documented. And same thing's happening in COVID. A, a Nobel Prize winning uh, Stanford chemist is uninvited from conferences because he doesn't support lockdowns. And it wasn't even a, a conference on COVID. He's not allowed to participate because he's not following the politically prescribed uh, you know, policies that you have to do. So the answer to your question is there's no punishment, only reward if you're wrong, if you favor the public policy position, i.e. governments want to solve the climate crisis. So as long as you gin up fear about it, you're doing the best science you can, regardless of whether it's accurate, regardless of whether it's wrong. Okay, Kevin, your thoughts? Uh, well, I, there was absolutely, other than a little bit of 
public ridicule, and um, the media here, as in most places, uh, tends to not report on things that might unfavorably on the uh, current state government here, but th- there were no consequences other than potentially a little uh, ridicule. The people who did this modeling are all still employed. We've been told for several months that any day now we would get an updated version of the model, and it it never comes. Um, but <laughs> so supposedly they're still working, and there've been absolutely no uh, no consequences at all. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, I, okay. Now I'm gonna go back. Okay, to you, Mark, on this because you know when I think of classics, I mean, here's my. You know, it was like here's the thing: the Green New Deal essentially is calling for no fossil fuels. Uh, the whole, you know, no nuclear energy. And maybe here's the question I'm going to ask you. Uh, it, it just popped in my mind, but, okay, Michael Schellenberger, who, by the way, believes in man-made, you know, AGW. You know, he, you know, in his yeah. most recent book, he still does, he still does not dispute that human activity is the main causative of our present warming. But he's also stated everything I've been telling you people about the worst case scenario that I've been myself telling you has been a lie or been you know, wrong, and 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 so what happens? So what? You know, I guess my question is: How does the scientific community, where you, it's, let's say, a Schellenberger or a Curry, or let's say, who is that gentleman uh, out of Berkeley? A uh, Mueller is a Dick Mueller. Mueller, yeah, Richard Mueller. Yeah, Richard Mueller. You know, sit back and have an intelligent conversation. Here's what we know. Here's what we don't know. Here's what we need to debate. Because that I don't see at all. And certainly when you have people like Schellenberger basically saying, you know, we can't, you know, you know, get rid of fossil fuels and nuclear energy is a disaster for the economy. I mean, when they're admitting that, you know, you know, it sounds like to me there is some ground for, let's say, a sensible energy policy if, let's say, the more extremists get out of the way. Uh, right. And yourself. I agree. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, that's what this is really about, is they basically are trying to declare a climate emergency. When I say they, I mean, for instance, Joe Biden's upcoming administration, he's got – it was written you know, by Kasia Cortez, Bernie Sanders' approval, his whole Green New Deal plank and climate platform. He's going to be dealing with a Congress that's going to be pushing a climate emergency. He's being urged by his advisors and climate activists – He's sympathetic to, to declare a climate emergency and essentially try to impose a climate, a version of a climate lockdown on America. And what that will entail is he's going to be able to suspend parts of democracy and do more uh, on all sorts of different climate related fronts. He's going to, first of all, undo everything President Obama did, which was undoing everything President I'm sorry, undoing everything President Trump did, which was undoing everything President Obama did. So we're going to go yin yang here in America. But Essentially, they want to scare people first so we can't have a rational energy debate. Now, I'm going to compare it to COVID here because John Perry says the parallels are screaming at us between COVID and climate. And here's how you compare it. We were told 2.2 million dead based on Neil Ferguson's discredited uh, COVID model uh, back in March. So what did we do? We didn't have time to rationally think it out. We didn't have time to ask questions like this was never in the playbook to do wholesale society lockdowns, national mass mandates, statewide mass. None of this existed. But, you know, there's no time to act. We're in a public health emergency. We have to do it now. This is the way progressives 
like to operate because one of their models, and if you, you know, Tom Friedman, I quoted in my book, in, uh, The Political Incorrect Guide to Climate Change, he actually says China is the model. He likes the way China does it right. They have one-party rule. They don't have all the messiness. They don't have all the delay. They don't have the industry funding. They don't have anything that can delay. They can just do what needs to be done. And the, the, what I will say here is the public health emergencies declared on COVID, and I fault President Trump with this. I'm not a fan of President Trump on COVID, but not for the reason most people think. I think he went way overboard in reacting to it instead of uh, treating it like the Hong Kong flu and the Asian flu in the 1950s and the 1960s when we dealt with this prior. But essentially, we did not have time to act. We didn't have time for, for rational debate. We had to act immediately. They like China because that's the way Chinese did it, and, this, and that's what we're facing here. They want a one-party rule. That's why they're trying to make climate an emergency. That's why COVID is an emergency, and that's the way they want it because they don't like democracy. They don't like debate. It's too messy. It's too, too slow. We are being an, an, uh, literally the greatest threat to our freedom and our, our nation's history take outside of slavery and uh, 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 segregation. This is it, the lockdowns. Yeah. Hold on to a thought. This is Tom Donaldson uh, with uh, Mark Marino and Kevin Roach. We'll be right back here in a second. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for flu. The media is exactly. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Okay, Don Donaldson back here on the Donaldson Files. And ladies and gentlemen, don't forget, we do have a new website, thebachelornewsradionetwork.com, thebachelornewsradio.com. We also have some new shows, The Gray Leopard Cove. is a new show that will be coming on very shortly on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And the Bachelor News Radio Network.com, you can get this show and you can get the uh, some of our most recent programs. Just listen to them at your convenience here on the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Okay, Kevin. Uh, this is uh, to me, COVID to me is one of those emotional issues because I, I'm going to put it this way I've got, you know, you know, basically, I have a lot of friends of mine who are scared. I, who share, they're nervous. It's almost like, you know, and you know, in some ways, I got family members who curtail their own, you know, activities, uh, for, you know, for the various fears. And, and I guess my question is, you know, when does uh, this fear is paralyzing a good portion of what's going, you know, what we are able to do and can't do, and, and it's having its own negative impact, which you've discussed. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I think, I think it's pretty obvious that um, between the media and some politicians, um, people have been completely terrorized um, into believing that, you know, they're all going to get sick and die when the statistics pretty clearly show that for the bulk of the community-dwelling population, the risk. Uh, is extremely low of um, having any uh, serious illness um, from this. And the results of that 
uh, terrorization is not just causing mental health problems for people, but we are now seeing increasing amounts of research um, that shows that we have an increase in heart attack deaths because people were afraid to go to the emergency room when they had clear symptoms. Uh, We have an increase in diabetes deaths because people ignored symptoms of either low or high blood sugar. Um, We have an increase in deaths from hypertension because people um, have been uh, afraid to go to the emergency room or seek routine care. Um, Just uh, yesterday, a study was released by a very prominent group in the Journal of the American Medical Association uh, among Medicare beneficiaries, screenings for the most common uh, cancers are down by at least 50% and as high as 85%. That is the difference between somebody being caught at a very early stage and being able to be cured uh, and people um, not being diagnosed until their cancer has reached a far more um, serious stage and may lead to much more uh, serious illness and even death. Um, There's just example after example of this, and and that kind of terrorization that results in those those kinds of consequences is directly the responsibility of the media and the politicians. And it's another example of a complete failure to have a balanced response that considers the interests of the entire population. And I am convinced that at the end of the day, the health harms alone from these government actions will be far worse than the toll from coronavirus. And if I could just add one, one thing to uh, Kevin's comment there, there's a, uh, a paper out of South Africa that says, uh, for every life that the lockdown allegedly saved, uh, there is 29 lives dying. And this was done by South African insurance actuaries. A separate study by the U.K. government estimated much more conservative that four people die for every one life saved during a lockdown of COVID. So four people die of lockdown-related issues, delayed cancer screening, mental health, addiction issues, uh, heart issues. A big issue is with infant mortality because a lot of babies who have diarrhea and breathing problems, worried parents don't want to take them to the hospital, so they're delaying it, and we've lost higher infant mortality. So these are two studies now from South Africa and England that are actually coming up with hard numbers. Yeah. I, I, okay. The other, let's, now I'm going to kind of switch over to climate change because I see a lot of similarities in this regard, is that, you know, I've always stated that the the – what we're witnessing now is like a dress rehearsal for the Green New Deal. And I and and again, I I guess my biggest fear is subsidies of health of science research hurting research or helping research or let's say hurting research in the sense that if you don't produce the right result, you're not going to get funding. Yes, in and fact, I'll start with uh, you, Mark. One of, our, one of our former presidents said the exact thing you're worried about. We must be alert to the danger that public policy could, could, be, could, could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite, where a government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. 
Now think about that. That was President Dwight David Eisenhower, his farewell address in 1961, warning of the climate state, the COVID state we're now under. Eisenhower said the prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment project allocations in money is ever-present and gravely to be regarded. In other words, what we have here now, and I've given an example in my book of a butterfly scientist. Now, he does studies butterflies, and has a, but no one really pays attention to him. So suddenly he decides, I'm going to do a modeling study on how possibly could, might, maybe butterflies in the American Southwest could be destroyed by 2080. So he does a modeling scenario, all, you know, all solid math and solid premise, but he comes up with three scenarios, butterflies benefit, butterflies not affected, butterflies horribly affected. The university gets it, says, look at this, butterflies doomed. The pre media office gets it. They release it out. The media is interested. UN suddenly interested. This, this butterfly scientist is now getting grants. He's going to UN climate conferences in, in Bali and Cancun. He's now listed as the 97% expert, all because he, he decided to do what the, what, the, what the funding of the day, if you will, is in climate research. And so he joined that bandwagon. Suddenly he's an expert, and no one questions his expertise. What does a butterfly scientist know about carbon dioxide and the geologic history of the earth and ice ages and everything. Not, he doesn't study that, but it doesn't matter. He's got the right answer. So even if he's wrong on the science, he's got the right, he's wrong in the right direction, which means he's favoring the public policy angle. That's what Eisenhower warned about. That's what we're living through. And now with COVID, all of the financing is going to, you can imagine COVID studies and COVID and all the vaccine money is about to be made by this, uh, by huge vaccine makers. So we are in this deep, it actually has a name, it's called the Great Reset. The World Economic Forum dubbed it that uh, in June. They said we need a great reset of capitalism following coronavirus, and that's exactly what they're intending to do. Lockdown's greatest transfer of wealth from poor and middle class to wealthy. Uh, this is the most astonishing thing that's happening right before our eyes. We are losing the battle. Most people aren't even aware of it. Okay, okay. Kevin, I'm going to go back to you. Okay. All right, Sweden is now – the Sweden politicians are basically reversing some of the policies they've had. And if somebody says – you know, I guess the question I would throw back to you is, all right, Mr. Roach, you know, Sweden is an example you've been giving of doing a balanced approach. Now they're retreating from that. How do you respond to that? Well, first of all, I think that's inaccurate. They, they have not – Retreated from their approach. The other observation I would make, which is highly ironic, is that um, you know, in an era where we're supposed to follow the experts and the science, the public health experts uh, and scientists in um, Sweden did not agree with some of the changes that were made by the political leaders. Um, so I, I just found that kind of ironic in itself. But they. You know, the supposed additional measures that they've put in place, which are to some extent limited by geography, um, uh, are, are really uh, pretty minor. And it's not a, you know, kind of wholesale reversal of the general policies they've had. The other thing I'll point out, which, you know, we just – I've been tracking this carefully, um, you know, here in Minnesota – we just uh, passed the dubious milestone of we now have a higher per capita death rate than Sweden does. And um, the question I always pose to people is, would you rather have gotten to that death rate the way Sweden did with no general lockdown, with schools being open for in-person learning, with the population being 
pretty free to um, go about its normal lives. And would you like to get there the way we've gotten here in Minnesota? And I suspect that after a couple of more months, um, we're going to have a substantially higher population death rate here in Minnesota than will exist in Sweden. And so you're going to have to ask yourself which way worked better. Yeah. Hold on a thought. This is Tom Donson, Coach. Uh, we're here on the Donaldson Files with uh, Mark Marino and Kevin Roach. If you want real discussions on politics, social issues, racial issues, and other topics, then tune into the Bachelor News Radio Show. Listen live every Monday and Thursday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com. And if you missed the show, you can listen every Monday through Saturday at 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern and every Sunday at 5 a.m. and 3 p.m. at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. Listen and be informed. This is Tom Donson right back. Don't forget the bachelornewsradionetwork.com is our new website. We are now doing some updating of our network with a brand-new website. The Bachelor News Radio Network.com. You can come by and listen to our show uh, anytime, this particular show at your convenience. So, the um, Bachelor News Radio Network.com. All right. All right. Okay. Now, we got about 15 minutes left. And I do want to give you some time at the end of the show to kind of. You know, talk about you know you know some of your major you know projects you're on, but let me let me okay let me put it this way, Kevin. You know, that's just the beginning of the show. I'm going to kind of ask it again, it you know a little bit you know now. If you were advising the governor of Minnesota, what would you tell him? What policy he should be following to benefit all of Minnesota? What would that contain? Well, my first piece of advice would be to stop issuing unilateral orders. One of the worst things that's come out of this is the complete subversion of democratic processes, which, you know, at most should be tolerated for two, three days. There is no excuse in any state why the legislature should not be the primary body uh, kind of making decisions um, with in consultation with the governor. Um, that's far more democratic. It would lead to better decisions because you would have more perspectives, uh, more data, and more information considered. So that my first advice would be just stop with the emergency and stop with the orders. The second thing would be, as I said before, I, I would order that schools return to in-person learning for all students. Uh, and I would stick to that no matter what. The harms to children are just far too great. Um, you know, we've got an, a ridiculous order here right now telling people that they literally cannot uh, socialize in their own homes with anybody who doesn't live in the house. So you can't see your children. You can't see your grandchildren. Thank God it is widely ignored. But we literally have an order here that sells, that says that. That needs to go immediately. I think every business should be open. Um, I think, you know, people are perfectly capable of making good decisions about how to manage and handle and estimate the risk in their own lives. And I think it's frankly time to go back to kind of relying on that judgment 
instead of on this barrage of orders that are trying to micromanage people's lives now for over nine months. Okay, now, okay. Now, Mark, I'm going to put this to you this way, all right? Number one, what's a sensible energy plan that, A, would keep air clean, water clean, would even – you can even – Get Michael Schellenberger to to uh, to uh, jump in on because I know he's a big nuclear energy guy. So if somebody said, yeah. "Okay, give me an energy plan that ninety percent of us can live with," that would do well, everything. Everybody plan, would go ahead. Sure, it's a really one-word answer: freedom. And that's the bottom line. Don't ban energy that's built America and proven successful: oil, gas, coal and then mandate energy that's not yet ready to take over. What they want to do is take 3% of global energy production, solar and wind, and somehow magically expand that radically, with or without nuclear. You know, there's a, there a Green New Deal originally said no nuclear, and now some people are trying to say, oh, yeah, we'll include some nuclear. But essentially, they are going to create an energy shortage in the United States and they're going to raise prices, which are going to harm people on fixed income, poor people, seniors. You're going to have people, you know, remember, cold kills much more than warmth. So in the winter, when people can't afford energy bills, you're going to have seniors slipping away. So the answer to your question is the day people can go to the local Walmart, buy a solar panel, bring it home, put it on their roof, and get off the grid is the day we don't have to have an energy debate. Until such a time, don't ban energy that works. We're seeing this with cars as well. One of the Democrat candidates, Andrew Yang, wanted to ban private car ownership and have a roving fleet of electric cars. Well, now we're getting you know, this subsidized, not really mandated yet, but electric cars they're trying to shove down our throat. Well, that's great, but they're going to be going after now in the Biden administration regular cars, gas-powered cars. They're going to come up with preposterous very hard to reach cafe corporate average fuel economy standards for them. They're going to raise the cost. They're going to make cars smart. They make cars smaller, lighter, less safe. You're going to have a higher death toll in the end, possibly as the cars get lighter because the lighter cars less safe and smaller cars less safe. But what I would argue is if if green energy, as Al Gore says, is the entrepreneur's dream and all this money, great, let it happen. Let everything compete and let's see what can win at the end of the day here. Not government picking winners and losers. And that's the problem is the Green New Deal is all about declaring a climate emergency, not allowing debate, and then just allowing essentially lobbyists and uh, people behind closed room in the political process decide what's winners and losers. They're already talking about uh, President Obama-elect Obama, whatever you want to – Biden is already talking about – uh, another stimulus round, green energy like Obama did, the tens of billions of dollars, which led to companies like Solandra and even recent estimates coming out from mainstream news stories. These are not disputed. The people didn't receive their money back. They were investments that just went away. And we're going to be doing a whole nother round of that. And I'm not against solar and wind, but I'm against saying solar and wind are the only answer and we're going to ban all other forms of energy and regulate it out of existence like Biden has talked about on the campaign trail and Camilla Harris about fracking and coal and oil and oil exploration. So we are facing a mess, uh, and it's you know the next four years. We went from under President Trump. This is the most phenomenal statistic. So from an energy importer to an exporter, we went from energy import. So it's the first time since 
Harry S. Truman was president, America not only had energy independence, energy dominance. And if you want to keep us out of wars in the Middle East, you want us to be energy independent and energy dominant. And we're now going to turn that on its head as we start crushing American energy beginning in January. Okay. Now, okay, Kevin, I'm going to go – I'm going to throw this out to you, Kevin. I'm not sure – I mean, maybe a little bit out of your expertise. I know that the you know, John Hinderacker's uh, Center for American Experiment have talked about Minnesota and mining, and it kind of fits into this, where you have a big debate you know, within Minnesota, where northeast Minnesota, you got a ton of, like, hoop, copper, other rare minerals that could be mined, and people can make them and be profitable. And you have this opposition to that. And, and is this kind of a similar debate that we're seeing with climate change or seeing with COVID, you know, mine or no mine, especially in Minnesota where, you know, we're talking, uh, you know, pretty good income for a lot of people outside of, uh, let's say, the, the metropolitan area. Well, I think the similarity is that the, the people who are opposed to the mining tend to um, quote and use uh, supposed science that is um, very poorly grounded in any actual data or reality. I, I think it's uh, pretty clear at this point that people can develop and operate mines in a way that is environmentally uh, safe and doesn't have untoward consequences toward the public health or toward kind of the, the natural environment. So I think that's that's where the similarity is, is people are just will promote um, any kind of basically false or unreliable uh, scientific study. Um, and they have dupes in uh, government agencies who are more than happy to go along with it. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, all right. Again, I'll, okay, Mark, I'm going to go back to you in this regard, okay? Uh, you sure. stated, okay, you just stated, okay, I can live with wind, I can live with solar as part of an overall strategy of energy. In other words, let the market decide. And so maybe, okay, from your perspective, we're, if we subsidize, if we had similar subsidies for all, or let's just say no subsidies for any of these energy sources and just a low tax rate, let's say, hey, these, you know, we'll, we'll just, ta- you know, if you do energy in the U.S. will tax you at this very low rate. You know, you know, let the market decide. Where does wind and solar come out? Well, it all depends on technological breakthroughs. Um, I don't want to ever say I, – I, again, I don't want to ever be positioned against wind and solar, but they have their own horrible environmental, ecological uh, issues. For instance, Wind and solar and electric cars, for that matter, rely on rare earth minerals, cobalt. And one of the things is in communist China or China uh, has been operating mines in Africa, accused by Amnesty International of using child laborers, of ex- worker exploitation in the worst conditions with no re- regulatory safeguards to produce all these rare earth minerals. As the United States has shut down our rare earth minerals because of environmental concerns. So we're outsourcing our emissions our environmental uh, footprint by, by all this. So solar and wind, uh, I don't know where they'll come out. They'll come out, uh, they're only 3% of global energy production right now, but I think uh, solar has a much greater potential in the future of technological breakthroughs, and it could happen rapidly. So uh, a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of speculation of how fast and when, 
We still need to rely on battery technology, but I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. But the point is neither do the politicians, and no one should be trying to, to essentially micromanage our future and dictate it. And most of all, it's only being done based on the grounds of a, a climate emergency, and there's no time to debate. We must act now. Again, the exact same playbook that came about with COVID. 2.2 million deaths are about to happen. We have to lock down. We have to shut down the entire world to fight this, or we're all going to die. It's going to be a catastrophe. That's, where they, that's their model, and they love it. The environmentalists at first were jealous of the COVID lockdowns, and now they're jumping on the bandwagon and very excited. In fact, the best phrase is from Jane Fonda. The best exact quote was, COVID is God's gift to the left. Actress Jane Fonda. And the reason she said that is because everything they've ever wanted is in the solutions. And what do I mean by that? The left progressives, particularly public health, climate left, they love what I would call the Soviet approach to human society, regulating every aspect down to your outdoor barbecue, how many people, how many different households. This is what progressive bureaucrats wake up every day. It's not that they're evil. It's that this is what they do. They want to micromanage every level of society, whether it's energy, transportation, the food you eat, the appliances, the, uh, you know, how many people you've been in contact, contact tracing, you name it. All the same boat. That's what they're doing. Okay. Okay, I'm going to stop everybody right there right now because we've got about three minutes left to the show. And I want to give you guys a chance to uh, talk about yourself. So, first of all, Kevin, thank you very much for being on the show. I appreciate it. Uh, you did a great job. Uh, and uh, the question I'm going to ask, uh, ask you is, okay, talk about your blog site, how people can listen to it. And also, I know you're a consultant, so if you want to talk about how people can get a hold of you as a consultant, go right ahead. Uh, yeah, I think, the, first of all, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, people who want to read the blog can find it at www.healthy-skeptic.com. Um, and uh, every now and then I do a podcast on the blog, and um, I believe uh, either today or tomorrow, There'll actually be a link up to a YouTube narration of a standard presentation that I've put together on the uh, on the epidemic. Okay, okay, Mark. I mean, you got so much to talk about, so try to keep it within ninety seconds. <laughs> All right, great. My website is climatedepot.com. At the very top of the website. Uh, you'll see my report on the COVID lockdowns uh, entitled The Great Reset. Uh, in addition to that, I have a, a film out, just came out in September, Climate Hustle 2. You can go to Climate Hustle 2, either the number or the word, climatehustle2.com, and you can stream it or order DVD. I think that will go through the A to Z. It opens with the COVID climate connection, but we go all through solar, wind. It asks the question, are they trying to control the climate or you? The answer is they're trying to control people. Same thing in COVID. They're not trying to control a virus at this point anymore. They are trying to control human society, every aspect. That's what we're fighting. We are fighting the super state regulatory state right now. That is the battle. Don't let anyone tell you it's not. It's not about necessarily a profit motive. This is an ideological battle. People who wanted this for decades are finally using COVID to achieve their dream of a perfectly planned, masterminded from above government society. That's what we're living in right now. And it's, I, I don't see it lifting anytime soon without mass protests. Okay. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mark. Thank you very much, Kevin. This is Tom Donaldson. 
uh, saying goodnight. We'll be back next week on the Donaldson Files here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Don't forget, uh, bachelornewsradionetwork.com. You can listen to this show and other past shows at your convenience. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, thanks our guest, and good night. trumpet you know it's the dr larry show on the bachelor news radio network i'm dr larry fedewa and i'm your host your host for the next hour tonight uh we uh, i want to start with a uh a notice that uh with uh, if you call in uh if you want to be on the show or even listen to the show uh call 646 929 zero one three zero and uh talk to our screener and uh we will uh, be glad to take any questions that uh, that you might have or comments so tonight our topic is going to be what in the hell is going on pardon us if we are a little confused regarding the current status of the 2020 election results We have been saying all along that we are dedicated to following the rule of law. Now, however, we are watching all levels of the judiciary who personify the law in the USA, rejecting what appears to many of us as highly suspicious behavior on the part of the vote counters, some without even hearing the evidence of the plaintiff. These rejections are north of 60 cases, at all levels of the judiciary, from circuit courts to federal appellate courts, including the uh, Supreme Court's uh, rejection of injunction on the uh, Pennsylvania uh, certification uh, yesterday. So what is going on? And where are the chief law enforcement organizations, the Justice Department and the FBI, We should be leading the investigations into allegations of monumental crimes of election fraud. Instead of leading the search for truth, they are nowhere to be found. Attorney General William Barr, thought to be a nonpartisan pillar of integrity, ducks out of his responsibilities by saying his department could find no crimes which would change the outcome of the election, and this without, a incite, without citing any such investigatory efforts. The only judge showing enough true grit to hold the state officials to their oath of office is Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito, who is hot on the trail of the Pennsylvania mess. 
Of course, the end game of most of these lawsuits will be the actions of the Supreme Court as a whole when some of the current cases have traveled the gauntlet of judicial rejections in order to get standing for the high court to act. So here we are, days before the traditional certifications of the Electoral College are scheduled to begin, waiting to see what the Supreme Court will do. Will they accept the case or cases and issue a decision, as in the case of Gore v. Bush in 2001, or will they also decline to exercise their duties? If they do accept the cases, what will their verdict be? The very vastness of the suspected corruption is a challenge which gives everyone pause. What is being alleged is a conspiracy which touches nearly every state in the Union. There is a pattern of ballot tampering which has eerie similarities in nearly every suspicious state, and that in turn strongly suggests central planning. The remedy may mean declaring the entire election null and void. Then what? Another election? Extension of the present terms while the new election is organized? For the first time in American history? Alternatively, the selective decertification of certain votes among the many, cast in person and by mail, who would enforce strict behavior of the recount and the responsibilities of the poll watchers. And there are other issues as well, particularly the widespread use of the Dominion software, which we're told has some 34 state users, which has been roundly criticized as an instrument of ballot tampering. A prohibition against use in an American election would cause an upheaval in the many states which have relied on this technology to operate their balloting. The other factor is, if the Supreme Court does accept one or more cases, how will they vote? Will the Chief Justice retain his posture of going with the wind, as he has in some notable previous cases? We'll have more to say about this later on. Or will he be guided by the, institu- by the Constitution? And what will be the effect of the new justices on the rest of the court, if any? Yes, these are exciting times we live in, but also very confusing. So tonight uh, we have two guests, uh, commentators who are very well versed in this uh, sort of uh, dilemma, if if anybody can claim that. Uh, The first is um, uh, think tank uh, president uh, George Landreth. And uh, our uh, colleague Tom Donaldson, uh, is, uh, who's also put on his uh, head as a pollster and commentator, and uh, th- these gentlemen are going to uh, discuss with me what, uh, what is going on and what should we be doing. So, uh, gentlemen, uh, welcome to uh, the Dr. Larry Show. And, George, you want to start by uh, telling a little bit about... Uh, the Frontiers for Freedom? 
Sure. Well, first of all, it's just a real privilege to be here. Larry, I really appreciate the opportunity to be with you and Tom. Uh, always uh, I always find the conversation very uh, stimulating and enlightening. But uh, Frontiers of Freedom was founded as a uh, public policy think tank by U.S. Senator Malcolm Wallop. He was uh, a friend and ally of Ronald Reagan's, and uh, he uh, started Frontiers of Freedom when he retired from the U.S. Senate because he didn't want to stop uh, being involved in public policy. And uh, I've been there really now, I guess, for over 20 years. But bottom line is we focus on all the things you might expect somebody who is a fan of Ronald Reagan to do. Um, we give out a, periodically a Ronald Reagan award at a major dinner or gala. And, um, you know, so we're for peace through strength. We're for smaller government. We're for government that uh, abides by the rule of law. Um, you know, the idea that the Constitution says what it means and means what it says, those kinds of things. That's who we are. Well, welcome uh, welcome back to the show. Uh, Tom, uh, would you like to give uh, the audience a little bit of your non-Bachelor uh, News uh, background? <laughs> yeah. Right now, I am the chairman of America's PAC, and we are now running ads to save a the Republican Party in the state of Georgia. I also do, I'm the project director for America's Majority Foundation, um, and I've been responsible for overseeing as well, uh, 40, uh, 40 research projects and 35 of which I either author or co-authored. I'm the author of eight great books, none of which are bestsellers, but they all should be, including The Rise of National Populism and Democratic Socialism. And now I'm beginning to... Uh, uh, right, you know, I'm getting my notes and everything together and beginning the process of writing the sequel. I second uh, that motion. That book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I almost feel like title when it's uh, I Told You So. <laughs> <laughs> but that's already been taken by, uh, yeah, but I think Rush Limbaugh named his second book that. Well, uh, we're going to take a, a brief break. Uh, you're listening to the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. If you want real discussions on politics, social issues, racial issues, and other topics, then tune into the Bachelor News Radio Show. Listen live every Monday and Thursday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com. And if you miss the show, you can listen every Monday through Saturday at 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern and every Sunday at 5 a.m. and 3 p.m. at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. Listen and be informed. Welcome back to the Dr. Larry Show, which is also the home of Locker Talk with Barry Barnes, where you can hear about NFL stars of tomorrow today. Listen to Barry every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time at blogtalkradio.com slash LA hyphen bachelor and the podcast every day from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time with back-to-back episodes on thebachelornews.airtime.pro. And if you're interested in having your own show or advertising with us, email at uh, labachelor40 at gmail.com. Listen and stay informed. So now, gentlemen, I am going to ask you the $64 question. 
and that is, uh, what did you think of the uh, of the uh, opening statement? And uh, George, I guess you go first. Well, I agreed with you. I I, I think there's um, you look at all of this and you kind of wonder. Uh, early on, what we heard was you got to prove. You know, where's the proof? Where's the proof? And and at first, I'm like, okay, well, that's a fair point. You got to prove these things. You can't just allege them. But then, as we started seeing the affidavits, the testimony, the uh, even hearings that were held in several states, and and then the the mainstream media continued to say, where's the proof? Where's the proof? And I'm thinking to myself, really? Are you guys not paying any attention? Um, you know, and I, you know, the question, of course, is, is, is we don't, I don't know yet, off the top of my head at least, how many votes it impacted, but it looks like it impacted hundreds of thousands of votes, um, certainly enough to make a difference, but who knows? I mean, you know, but the point is the complete lack of interest, and I find it stunning because we just spent the last four years essentially investigating uh, the possibility that Russia had played a role in our elections and, um, and that there had been meddling in our elections and things that weren't. And yet there was no evidence at all of that, they, except that I guess they did uh, spend maybe a hundred or $150,000 on some Facebook ads uh, for and behalf of both sides of the equation because they were looking to foment discord. And boy, did they get that for a small investment. But all of a sudden now a complete disinterest in real potential uh, election meddling and, and election fraud. So I just, I kind of, I'm in a state of stunned disbelief because, I, and I guess the problem is, is you should never underestimate the potential on the extreme left for hypocrisy and double standards. And that if I had, if I'd remembered that basic corollary or rule, or I, I probably wouldn't be so dismayed. But, but here I am. Tom, what's your comment? Well, basically, I am not surprised <laughs> by all of this uh, since I've seen it for like 40 years in political politics. I, I think to me this is a crisis in this regard. Is I don't – again, I'm like George. I don't know if like in the state of Pennsylvania, state of Michigan, the fraud was within what I call – what we in the political business call the MOF, margin of fraud. Uh, the margin of fraud. But I do know this. The rules were changed, like in, in Pennsylvania, even in Georgia, where literally what the state legislator passed was ignored. And the case of, you know, in the, and, and this is where John Roberts, if he had done his job before the election, had stated, hey, the state legislator has made this clear. This is the policy we're going to follow. On balloting, that's it. You can't sit back and reinvent the wheel through the courts and essentially overturn what the state legislature rules are. I think we've been, I'm not sure we'd not be in this, but we would be in a much better position because then you could have challenged, let's say, Michigan. You could have challenged, let's say, all of these votes that the counts that got stopped in the middle of the night and, and so on down the line. And But I mean, it's a complete mess because we really will never truly know to what extent the fraud occurs and whether or not uh, what truly happened. But I will say this. If I'm a Republican, 
I am going to, if I'm a Republican, I'm going to say you better find out what happened to clearly. And in fact, let me let me tell you a story. I had a good old friend of mine just call me up about a week ago, and we got talking. And and she said we called this several years ago. This was going to happen. You know this kind of you know this stuff. And one of the things that I did in 2013 in the state of Illinois is I ran a project where we looked at voting patterns at various precincts. And we found some anomalies where we were finding, like in Chicago, there was like 10 zip codes where a thousand or more, you had a thousand or more voters than you actually had adult uh, citizens in those precincts voting. I mean, that's, I mean, about, I mean, register to vote. I mean, let me repeat that. You had register for more people than, let's say, adults based on the census. And one of the candidates was smart enough. He spent a half a billion dollars where he basically paid poll workers to go to those sites to make sure they don't get cheated. And he won. And he became, you know, and this was Bruce Rauner, and he won his election as a Republican in the state of Illinois. But the point is, this happened on a multiple scale, and if you don't find out, it's going to happen again. Well, I'd like to pick up your comment on uh, on John Roberts. I, I I have a I have a feeling that he is really the key to this whole this whole this whole thing. Um, he is. He. I think I can. I can hear him almost uh, saying to the rest of the uh, court uh, regarding that uh, the uh, imposition of a sanction, uh, a temporary injunction against uh, certification of the Pennsylvania vote. He, I can almost hear him say, "Listen, people, uh, we are a." We are here to talk about the law, to uh, stay within the Constitution. There's nothing in the Constitution that says that we have the right or the responsibility to direct uh, the uh, re- the election uh, rules for the entire country. So I think that this is uh, essentially outside our jurisdiction, and therefore we ought not to even consider it. And I can I can uh, I can almost hear him saying that. And then you got these uh, these new justices who are kind of they're they're apparently uh, following the leader. And uh, the, the the real key the key question now it seems to me is that the uh, appeal of that particular uh, injunction stay uh, decision is now uh, pending. It was filed today. And uh, the entire court uh, will have to, uh, or should anyway, uh, decide uh, whether or not they are going to pick up the uh, substance of the uh, of the plaintiff. And there, that, that is when we are going to see whether these uh, three new um, justices uh, are going to join join uh, hands with Alito and uh, Thomas, and actually overrule the Chief Justice. Uh, that that's the way I see it. And if they decide that they are going to go along with him, that it is outside the jurisdiction of the uh, Supreme Court to 
be dictating uh, what the uh, remedy should be for this kind of uh, crime, uh, then uh, they are not going to get involved. And our last hope as American citizens of uh, uh, of having the rule of law triumph over crime and fraud and uh, and uh, misappropriation of uh, authority. Uh, the last, our last hope is the Supreme Court of the United States, and and if they decide not to hear, and not to even consider uh, the uh, vast amount of evidence that is now piling up in the in the front of all of the American public uh, through these uh, hearings that these uh, that the uh, Giuliani and his crowd have been uh, instigating, uh, then I think that. Uh, uh, George's uh, bewilderment and uh, and uh, my uh, disappointment uh, are are well earned, and and that I believe is that that is my uh, analysis of what is going to happen, or at least what the what the uh, what the procedures would be. Uh, and and frankly, if we don't have a rule of law. And if it is not going to be uh, enforced by the Supreme Court of the United States, then I don't think we have a rule of law. And I think that the open chaos that uh, that Marx and his crowd uh, predicted back in the 19th century, I think that is in fact going to happen. And I, I just, uh, if you talk about, if you're if you're a Republican, you you uh, want to have something uh, determined. Uh, I say if you're a Republican and there's nobody steps forward to enforce the law, then uh, the Republican Party is not going to ever win an election again. And in fact, it will go the way of the Whigs in 1856. So that is my dire forecast. Uh, and uh, whoever wants to comment on it, feel free. <laughs> well, what you're saying to me, uh, well, thank you for those cheery thoughts, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, this is cheerful time, right? Yeah, but, you know, here's the thing. I mean, to me, the real issue, I mean, the thing is to this, is that what we are, I mean, first of all, number one, I, I find it fascinating, the very same people, including the president, you know, I guess the I hate to use the word president like uh, the number potentially number forty six deemed Donald Trump as an illegitimate president for four years. And in the case of Joe Biden, uh, I mean this is a guy who knew the Russian collusion hoax was a hoax because he was briefed on it. He knew it from day one, and for four years did absolutely nothing to sit back and say, you know, you know, hey, we should you know, we should accept the fact Trump won. Let's move on. He never did that for four years. And now, you know, it's, you know, what I say, what goes around comes around, but it's a lot serious because you can't sit back for four years and say, you're an illegitimate president, and then sit back and say, but we're not going to investigate to make sure that this indeed is a fair election, that indeed they're a fraud, and that indeed we don't do something about it in the future. Uh, you know, it's like you're, you know, like I say, I don't have any empathy for Mr. Biden on this one. 
George? Um, well, I, I agree with that 100%. And um, I may have overstated my bewilderment. Um, I guess what I'm bewildered by is not that they've, you know, the left has gone the way it's gone, but that they do so without any sense of shame. It's, it's, it's amazing to me. I mean, I, I, I'm not capable of the sort of duplicity that they seem to just so freely exude. But, um, but I do think that one of the problems we have here is that the left has worked very, very hard, literally moments uh, after uh, media started calling a couple of the key states, uh, was for everyone to quickly acknowledge who the president-elect was. And, of course, they wanted us to um, – and I think that's because they want to make it difficult for a court. I, I personally believe that they understood how tenuous uh, the actual claim to victory was. But they, and so they wanted to make it hard on someone like a John Roberts or others that are not uh, – don't have real stiff spines and don't have a lot of courage. These are people that are basically without courage. And um, – make it really difficult for them to say, no, no, we've got to follow the law here, guys. We have a constitution. We've got to follow that too. And, and, and make it so they would kind of like bite their fingernails and go, oh, I don't know. I don't think I can do this. And it doesn't take a lot to scare John Roberts off. And uh, so the question is, is can they scare the others off? Um, I'm, I'm not convinced that they'll be able to, but I guess we'll find out in, in short order. But you are right that uh, this is about a lot more than who is inaugurated on January 21st, 2021. Hold that thought. Uh, we're, you're listening to the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. You're listening to the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network, and I'm going to take this uh, moment to plug our new website, uh, which is the Bachelor News Radio Network.com. And it is a, uh, a, a, a very big step forward for this network. Uh, we want to congratulate L.A. Bachelor for all the hard work that he's done to bring this about. And one of the good points of the new of the new website is that we will now have access to the podcast of every um, show that is on the network, and uh, it will be there at uh, accessible to us at any time by uh, simply going to the uh, name of the uh, show that you're interested in. And then reading the uh, date that uh, that is uh, on the uh, on the podcast, and uh, turn it on, and you can listen at your leisure. And no more of having to get up in the middle of the night or uh, stopping uh, your lunch break to uh, to uh, try to get uh, the latest uh, Dr. Larry show, for instance. And uh, uh, so. Uh, 
if you can uh, call up the uh, www.thebachelornewsradionetwork.com and you'll see a, uh, a new look for the entire uh, website, uh, for the entire network. So um, <clears throat> we're talking about uh, what is going on in terms of the uh, both the process of trying to establish a, uh, uh, a, a uh, the rule of law over uh, very uh, dubious uh, and suspicious uh, uh, election uh, election actions on the part of many many uh, of the uh, states, uh, but also because of the uh, fundamental backbone, uh, digital backbone of the uh, election uh, process, uh, counting and uh, and summarizing and reporting that uh, had been left to this Dominion software uh, company and to their software, which in fact uh, appears uh, to be very, uh, uh, very suspicious and not only in terms of its uh, uh, activity, but also in terms of its ownership and its allegiance. Uh, there are things like uh, the talking of automatically uh, the software refers all of the uh, votes uh, en masse uh, uh, and exports them to Germany to be counted. Uh, and that the, that the ballots then become the property of the uh, company and not of the people of the United States of America. So, I mean, these are serious, uh, serious charges, and uh, and that is uh, really uh, frightening. This, this, I mean, this is uh, George Orwell's 1984, uh, almost uh, uh, almost upon us. So, anyway. Um, I think that I think that we have to look now uh, and 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 see what what's the good news coming out of all this. <laughs> it's uh, it's kind of a hard uh, hard question because uh, the the good news seems to be pretty far pretty uh, far between uh, between announcements. So after that long monologue, anybody else want to talk? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, let me put it this way. I, if there is good news, if you want to look at a silver lining, there are three things that – or there are a few things I would look at. Number one, if you didn't know who your enemies were, you now know who they are. Uh, we now know what the left is capable of doing to you know, disdain the idea that this is a normal political opponent that, let's say, you, George, and I grew up with. When we grew up, we grew up with a group – a different group of Democrats. You know, I'm not saying they were perfect. There's no doubt. If you lived in Chicago, you know the dead rise that rose every election. And if you had been a Republican in your life, you became a Democrat after death. But there was an element of civility that existed that doesn't exist today. There wasn't what I call this politics of personal destruction, where everything is fair game and we're going to make sure – you are destroyed. It's not, we'll, we'll fight you on the battle of ideas. You will be destroyed. And I think this 
is the number one thing we see. The number two we see is that the Trump coalition is a pretty strong coalition that in the hands of the right people who understands the coalition, we can build a majority from urban centers, rural areas, suburbanites, across the fruited plains, from, from, let's say, California, outside of New York and in the West, and basically build a new coalition of the middle class. If nothing else, we are now the party of the middle class. That's, you know, if you, you, know, if you learn anything, yeah, yeah, but that's my view. The, 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 the idea of uh, election uh, uh, engineering, re-engineering, or, or fraud, you know, that's not new. Uh, it was commonly no. thought, for example, that John Kennedy was elected by the dead people in uh, in the... No. Uh, in in uh, the, the Chicago, uh, Illinois, uh, so that 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 is pretty. You know, uh, I mean, that's yeah. been around for a long time. Well, no, I mean, but, like I said, I, I, as I stated, I mean, I don't dispute that we've had voter fraud from you know, from throughout our history. That's nothing new. What here's what I'm going to say is new, and maybe this. Let me throw it back in this. Let me give you a story, and then I'll have you know. And George, maybe you may want to comment on this. Because you and I and Larry, we've been involved in politics for several decades. So we've seen our political opponents evolve. But I can remember this. In 1988, I had this reporter. And this reporter, and and it's interesting because I found out later, the guy was a liberal Democrat. But one of the big stories was, you know, Will, and I was running a congressional campaign. We're trying to get the the, – you know, our opponents are debated as he's way ahead in the polls. He feels no need to debate. So we make this into an issue. He does this show, like a special news report, and he invites this Democratic campaign manager and said, well, have you been contacted by the other campaign for a debate? And he denied, oh, no, we've never seen any contact. He said, well, other than, and I love this line, some businessman out of Kansas. Yeah, because it was a Missouri election. I I lived across the border in Kansas. So it was like the derision, just some businessman trying to set this up, but nobody from the campaign. And so the reporter said, well, have you been contacted by Tom Donaldson? Wasn't that the businessman you're talking about? I said, oh, yeah, that sounds familiar. He said, well, Tom Donaldson is the campaign manager of, uh, of your opponent. So do you still stand by the statement you didn't get contacted by your opponent? And I, this guy had a look. On his face That was like he got caught in the lie Now let me put it this way Larry, George Show me one media outlet Today That would have run a similar story That would have been beneficial To a Republican candidate Just give me one Yeah but that You you were saying that you think that the biggest problem I mean the, the biggest new element Is the lack of civility I would say that the biggest, the most important element that's new is the universality of it. I mean, if, if you, we, 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 we still had uh, Reagan, for example, in the second term, uh, won by a landslide. That was still possible because uh, even though there was corruption in various big cities, particularly uh, New York and Chicago and Los Angeles especially, um, it, it was more or less uh, 
isolated, and there was no national uh, direction for it. But what we have now, uh, particularly because of the use of this digital um, software, uh, we we have a uh, virtually uh, universal problem. I mean, everybody is marching to the same beat. Uh, all of the uh, the uh, there must be some, and we know that there is some uh, central uh, planning that's been done. Uh, yeah. For example, that. The uh, Democrats have been putting together a, a very large cadre of, uh, uh, in, of uh, constitutional lawyers uh, way in advance of this of the election. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, yeah. Well, yeah. Let me clarify. I mean, when I say civility, I'm not talking about just you know being polite. I'm talking about a civility in which you recognize your opponent as an opponent. These uh, people recognize as me as the enemy, and that's the difference. Yeah, I can remember the 80s. You know, I could have my Democratic friends. We could have had a cup of coffee, we had beer. The election was over. You know, we moved on with our life. We didn't hate each other. We simply worked on the next election. This is totally different. You got the council culture. You've got powerful media outlets that will not, you know, they will if they aren't trying to destroy you, won't report on you. Report news that's not beneficial to the opponents. You know, as we say, Democratic opportunities are byline. Uh, let me put it this way. If you're on YouTube, if tomorrow morning this show was on YouTube, it would be censored. It would not be allowed. Anything dealing with the election fraud would not be allowed. So that's what I mean. That's what I mean is that it's not – You know what, that, you know what that's like. It's, you you yeah. know what it's really most, uh, mostly uh, uh, resembles – is is uh, Russia in uh, 1916, just before the uh, revolution uh, broke out into armed camps of uh, people that uh, were fighting each other to uh, to for dominance in the in the new the new Russia. The Bolsheviks won, but uh, they 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 won by by uh, by violence, and 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 that seems to be where we're headed. Because this, yeah. you know, there are a lot of people that are not going to. They're not going to. We we're already seeing. Uh, 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 we're already seeing a tremendous amount of uh, resistance to the uh, the so-called new lockdown. Uh, you know, and this, there's a lot of people that just won't take. They, they just won't accept uh, all of this uh, uh, domination of their lives by by government. It's going to it's going to come to uh, to uh, violence. I'm 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 afraid of it. It's yeah, like well, the French Revolution. Gonna, yeah, well, and that's a, that's my point. That is the difference. I mean, I'm gonna put this one. That is the difference. Is the fact that the other side is willing to how far they're willing to go? You know, this was not the case 30 or 40 years ago. You know, this is the case today. Now, what do you think, George? Yeah, George, you've been kind of quiet. <laughs> well, I'm just enjoying uh, listening. Uh, hopefully, uh, I hope the listeners are as well. No, but um, I think you make uh, some very good points. Um, one, of the, I would agree. There was a time when you could disagree on politics and remain friends. Uh, growing up, uh, you know, 
you could vote for Walter Mondale or you could vote for uh, Ronald Reagan. And you didn't get this, you're an evil person, we can't be friends approach. And we've kind of gone there. I mean, uh, you know, an Antifa group made a list of uh, people that they considered worthy of of being attacked and put it up on a map in the D.C. area. And I'm on that list. And I'm not particularly uh, afraid of that. um, But I have to say that's a weird world to be in, that because I run a think tank that's conservative and because I promote conservative ideas, that some, uh, you know, domestic terrorist group has decided to, you know, put my uh, name and location on a map and identify me as somebody that their followers should go after um, if they're feeling particularly angry that day. And um, it did, I don't, if you told me that was possible when I was, uh, you know, 20 something in college, I would have said, no, that's not here. That's not how we do things. But it is now. Thanks to the left, that's how we do things now. Well, hold that, hold, hold, hold that thought. Hold that thought. Hold that thought because well, I want to come back to that. But uh, you're listening to the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Greetings and great day, everyone. I am Elder Janelle Strickland, host of the Life Cafe Radio broadcast from Maximizing Life Family Worship Center. I invite you to tune in every Saturday from 5 to 6 p.m. Tune in, maximize your life with the Word of God, and be blessed. Only on the Bachelor News Radio Network. I remind you again uh, of the uh, new uh, website that we have. Uh, it's uh, the Bachelor News Radio Network dot com. George, um, you now got me really worried about you. Uh, so do you want to pick that up a little bit more? Well, no, I mean, I actually, I'll tell you, this gives you an idea how bad it is because this is just one family. My mother was at a shopping center near uh, our home. She was, my mother is a great-grandmother. She's old enough to be a great-grandmother. And um, she was at a sine wave. Her and about a dozen other senior citizens got together uh, along a you know thoroughfare, and we're waving their Trump signs. Um, all of a sudden, some guy comes storming over, uh, starts stomping on the signs, grabbing them out of their hands, and getting right up in their face, nose to nose, shouting, you know, "F Trump, F Trump," and just acting very threatening. My mother um, is not easily uh, intimidated, so she, even though the guy was far larger than her and much younger, um, she said, "Excuse me." Those are my signs, and I have every right to be here, and you, you do not have a right to behave this way. At that point, he punched her, knocking her to the ground. Really? And uh, dazed her. Yeah, dead serious. Uh, police were in a uh, nearby establishment and came running over. My mother was not uh, conscious at this point because she, she hit her head on the ground so hard, and uh, plus he punched her. And... Um, when she came, you know, kind of was aware of what was going on, the guy was in handcuffs in the back of the squad car. And, uh, and they were trying to help her to her feet and so forth and see if she was okay. Um, again, so this is one family. This isn't like, you know, 
this, someone from California and someone from Virginia taking two. This is one family. We both live in Virginia, in the D.C. metropolitan area. And one member of the family is on a, uh, you know, domestic terrorist list of people who are uh, worthy of, um, you know, retribution. Because of, and another was a great-grandmother who got decked by a guy, you know, I would estimate, you know, apparently in his uh, late 20s, early 30s. This is a very weird world we live in. And yet if you listen to the media, they would act as if somehow it's the right that's uncivil. It's the right that's – sorry, I've never punched a little old lady at a, at a, fl- a flag you know, for any reason. But I particularly would not be punching a little old lady because uh, she was, uh, supported a candidate that I didn't. And yet that's where we've come. And I would argue that's what the left has done. Um, they have gotten to the point where um, the very people who argue there are no actual moral standards have decided that apparently disagreeing with them, however, is a moral transgression that makes you worthy of violence and the threat of violence. Oh my God, that that is a fr- really frightening story. Yeah, all is your, is your mother okay? One family. Um, she is. She has. Um, she injured her wrist because um, I, I think in an attempt to break her fall, she put her hands back, um, or maybe she just fell on it funny. Um, so she's got some uh, problems to her wrist. But aside from that, she's in good shape. Wow. Well, I guess we arrest our case as far as uh, the proclivity of uh, some people to violence. Yeah, well, every, yeah, it's kind of a follow-up, though, because if you look at the Antifa movement, I mean, look at this 2020, most of these riots, Antifa, you know, and their allies out there. And you, I mean, this is where there's, you know, the violence is coming from. And the, here's the interesting thing. I'm going to throw this out to you, George. Both you guys, you and Larry, you both brought up the French Revolution. You know, there was about a month ago, there was a big story. You know, militant group going to kidnap the governor of Michigan. And, of course, it was, you know, a bunch of right-wing neo-Nazi types, right? Only to find out that the guy that their social media said on their social media, these same people say, we hate Trump, we're anarchists, we're supporting Black Lives Matter, every left-wing cause, they were there. And it was like, and I thought to myself, you know, this is the French Revolution. Yeah, there's an element within the, the political left that's like the French Revolution, namely, either give us everything or else it's going to be your head on the guillotine. Because whatever the French Revolution, even the, the original revolutionaries ended up on the guillotine before Napoleon brought order. Right. right. Yeah. Right. Well. No, I, I think that's a that's a very good point, and I think it's apt. Um, we have. Um, it, I, I don't really understand how we got to this place because it happened so rapidly. But, um, but I have noticed that when people get, become filled with hate, they not only become irrational, they actually become stupid too. I've had friends that tell me, quote, unquote, I hate Donald Trump. And then I hear the things that they have to say, and I'm embarrassed for them because these are educated people who are very successful in their careers, and yet – I, I hear them talk, and I think to myself, if I were grading you in a debate in a high school class, you would get an F for that. That's pathetic. That's not even a serious, rational thought. And yet they've somehow essentially lowered them. So it's very frustrating to me because um, 
I just don't understand how we got to this place. It, it doesn't make sense to me. We've always had disagreement. There's nothing wrong with disagreement. Disagreement is not a problem. If we're all thinking the same thing and agree on everything, that would strike me as worrisome almost because it's not the way human nature is. If you get a million people in a room, you'll probably have just short of a million different opinions. That's okay. The question is how do we resolve them? And historically in America, we did it by talking. We did it by essentially debating informally, not, not in a, a formal debate setting like on TV or anything, but sharing ideas, seeing where we found common ground and going, oh, yeah, I see what you mean there. I, I, I can buy part of that, but this is my concern with that part. You know? and, then, and you slowly work to where you have a, a solution that people kind of go, yeah, that makes sense. You can have a consensus. We're past that now. We're to the point now where if you don't agree with them, you're evil. I'm going to have to punch you and knock you down, and I don't care if you're in your late 70s too bad. You're just a bad person, and this is the right outcome. Or in the case of you know, me, you know, I'm going to put your name on a list, and I'm going to put it, and, and locate you on a map and tell everyone how they can get to there so they can take care of you and, and you know, mete out to you the violence that I think you deserve. That's just hatred not only makes you uh, more apt to violence, it actually may, it lowers your IQ. It makes you stupid. Well, I guess that's why they want to get rid of the police, huh? Well, yeah. I, I so, think that is why, because I think threats of violence are far more daunting if you believe that uh, when they show up to do harm to you, they won't show up at all, that you're just left to your own devices. So I do think that people... Um, if you're an anarchist, like those guys in Michigan, I had the exact same experience. Everyone told me, oh, look, see, Trump's fomenting all of the Trump, Trump, Trump. And that's what, of course, the, the, the uh, Gretchen, um, oh, Governor Gretchen, what's her name? I forget now. Um, Whitmore. Yeah, Governor, um, the witness yeah. one. I, always, I like to call her the witness one, but her name is Whitmore. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, but uh, she, she blamed Trump and said it was him. And, I'm, and then, you, like you said, you look at the social media, these guys – were big-time lefties. They were so far left that they even hated their own Democratic governor, um, who was pretty far left. I mean, she's about as far left as you can get, I thought, but apparently not enough for them. But, um, but that's the – just to me, we now live in a world where it's a fact-free world. You don't need to prove that these guys um, listened to Donald Trump, liked Donald Trump or anything. You just can assert it. You know, oh, this is this is his fault. This is his fault. I mean, today you have uh, Representative Swalwell uh, telling us that the real story we should be worried about is that apparently he thinks that Donald Trump has outed his uh, Chinese problem. But, but you shouldn't be worried about the fact that he was dating uh, a Chinese spy, that a Chinese spy helped fundraise for his first congressional campaign and got him you know, in the race, helped staff his office. None of that should bother you. What should bother you is that he says Donald Trump – and, of course, Donald Trump didn't release this information. If Donald Trump had that information and wanted it released, it probably would have been better to release it, say, about the time the impeachment hearings were being held. Now is not a strategic time to do that. But, but that's the point. You don't have to have facts. You just make a statement, and everybody who hates the man that you make the statement on goes, oh, it must be true. And, and we don't worry about the guy that's uh, you know, got this Chinese spy problem. It's all okay because – a bad orange man is the one who said something about this. He shouldn't have done that. So it's just it's a fact-free world where you can believe any fool thing you want 
as long as you know the Washington Post and the, and the New York Times and the various news networks are on your side. And, and that's where we've come. It's, it's a scary proposition because our founders believed, for example, that the, the debate was important. That's why we have the First Amendment. They also believed that the media was important because that would facilitate an informed electorate. And so the First Amendment, and now what do we have? We have a media that doesn't do its job, and we have uh, essentially um, a world in which debate is not only uh, frowned upon, but it's often viewed as hate speech. In other words, you expressing your view on a political issue, we're going to dismiss it as hate speech. So it's, I, I think we're in a pretty deep hole, and we've got to figure out how to get, get out of this, because if we don't, I fear we revert to the way things were before we had elections and uh, uh, this concept of we can, it's okay to disagree. But and you know how that worked out. That was back when uh, yeah. you would amass swords and weapons, and the side that had the most impressive army got to decide what the outcome of whatever the you know the political discourse was. I, I'd, I'd kind of like to make sure we have elections and debates and conversations, but not where we're headed at the current trajectory. Well, so what is what what do we have to look forward to in the United States of America? I mean, if what you if what you're saying is, in fact, if that is all true, then you know we might as well move to Canada. Yeah. Well, well um, I, 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 I. Go ahead. No, go ahead, George. Well, I, I, I'm all I am an eternal optimist, so I tend to believe that we can fix these things because um, oh. I believe. Well, um, I think, you know, shows like yours are helpful. Shows like Tom's are helpful. I'm hoping a show, a show like mine is helpful where we have thoughtful debate and, and discussion and we point out these things. I have friends on the other side who, when they hear these things, are appalled by them and say this can't continue. But um, the question is, are there enough of them? And we've got to recruit those people, not as, a, not as political allies. We need to be willing to let them continue to be political adversaries, but they need to be allies in this belief that we need to have a more civil society and that it's okay to disagree and, um, and stand up to the, these forces that are essentially trying to make it a crime to disagree with them. Yeah, but if, 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 what, you, if you, what you said before is in fact the, the reality, then uh, you and me and Tom, uh, we're not going to be on the. We're not going to be free to do this very long. They're going to come after us. Oh, that's true. Um, I, 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 I'm not saying that we're not in a dangerous spot. I'm just saying I do believe there are enough people in America of goodwill that if we actively and and proactively. Um, try to recruit them. Again, we don't have to recruit them to agree with us on the issues. We have to recruit them to agree with us that we need to have a civil society and that the answer can't be canceling people, violence, threats of violence, etc. And I think there's enough of us that when that's brought to their attention, they'll side with us. Um, they may not side with us on what the right tax policy should be. We, you know, we may disagree about that. That's fine. But um, I'm, I'm just saying... We've got to work on this, this question first. 
there has to be some understanding that it's okay for people in a civil society to not all agree. And it doesn't make them evil. It doesn't make them hateful. It doesn't make them bad. Tom? Well, I, I think, I mean, I, I guess what it comes down to is a bit, I, I, I don't know if it's a case where people have to suffer the consequences before they rebel. Uh, it may be, you know, we had this discussion on the, you know, my previous show where, on the, you know, you know when, when people start saying, you know what, enough is enough under COVID. Enough is enough. It's not enough to sit back and say, I mean, let's face it. If you're going to tell me, take a vaccine, wear a mask, but we're going to still not return your life to normal, I'm going to say, well, what is it going to take, you know, before, you know, we can open up our business to get back our life? And someplace, somewhere, you know, you're going to just see that resistance that says we're going to open our business. But it's not going to be easy because there was a very interesting story where I, I, I caught this where an a individual, a doctor, said, you know, I'm not wearing a mask. In my, so I don't always wear a mask in my office. And they took his medical license away. Uh, you look at the story of uh, Angela Markson, uh, the young lady who lost her business only to find out that NBC were allowed to conduct their own business with an outdoor dining for their staff and workers across the street from her. And I don't, and I, and it's a good question to say, is there a point where people say enough is enough is enough? Uh, and I don't know that, you know, how that's going to play out, but eventually there's a point where a point of no return where we can no longer do this. And it also means, in effect, that you're going to have to challenge those in power to say you've stepped over the line, and you've stepped over the line. And maybe if enough people say you've stepped over that line, because the one interesting thing about Southern California is the number of sheriffs and law enforcement who are saying, we're not going to enforce this crap. And once you start seeing that happen, and you got people saying, we're not going to force this crap. That's, you know, then maybe the table will start turning. And I think you're starting to see a little bit of that. You know, I, you know when I saw law enforcement in California where a group of sheriff's counties were saying, you know what, we're not enforcing this. You know, maybe that's, you know, it's, you know that's the rebellion that needs to happen. Well... It, it, you you can't rebel very effectively uh, if if uh, you're being shut down, you know, with uh, uh, invasion of uh, the jackboots, uh, like happened to uh, uh, General. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, General Flynn. You know, he show that they show up at uh, three or four o'clock in the morning with a, a SWAT team to. All they had to do was call him and ask him to come into the come into the the, the, the store, and uh, but I mean this this is this is going to be this is this is serious stuff. Well, we're almost at the end of our of our period here. We got about one minute left to go. Um, so what's our thought for tomorrow, uh, Tom? 
Well, for tomorrow, I'm going to say, the, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the Dr. Larry show is now the home of the new resistance for freedom and liberty. <laughs> You're in. Welcome to the home of the resistance. Maybe you need to do a new, uh, redo your show and just say, start every day after your horn. Welcome to the resistance. <laughs> George, uh, you've got about 30 seconds. <laughs> well, I, I think that's a, a good point. My guess is uh, if uh, if Larry's the home, then uh, then uh, perhaps Tom and I can be the, uh, the home away from home of the resistance because I do think that it, it's, it's important that we stand up. I think one that maybe we've almost almost been too um, reticent to say what what's what. But when the other side lies, rather than saying we disagree, we probably have to call them out. And I just think we have to kind of understand what's at risk here, and uh, and and always fight with fact and and reason and civility. But if someone's lying, it's okay to point out their lying. Well, you've been listening to the Dr. Larry Show, and we're wishing uh, our audience uh, good night, and God bless America. Dr. Larry signing off.